Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we love you. Father, we thank you for your son. Pray that your spirit would work and move and do incredible things through your words. This morning it will accomplish that for which you send it. Isaiah says that just two chapters later. So we're encouraged by the reality that we know your word works. Because your son works in us. So sanctify us. Pray that this text would reveal truths that help us live lives of righteousness and just tweak whatever things need to be tweaked in our lives, Lord. Fix our attitude and our hearts and our perspective that it be more and more biblical every day. Help us to do the hard things that we don't want to do, but that bring you glory. And we thank you for those who do them. So Lord, be honored and blessed. May your spirit bless your word to our hearts this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up in Isaiah's song of the suffering servant from his substitutionary atonement, which was well established in the previous verses. Christ took our place on the cross, suffering the death that we deserve. And in that, we glanced over the injustice and unfairness that the perfect one should bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and be killed for our transgressions. But in this fourth stanza, Isaiah emphasizes the unfair injustice of this sacrifice and the unfairness and the injustice was required Christian prayed that during communion that the injustice that Christ faces is is to our benefit and Isaiah tells us it's necessary and what we'll see today is what that means to the gospel, what it means to those who killed Jesus, what it means to the Jews, what it means to our salvation, and what it means to our daily walk in the body of Christ in a world that rejects the gospel. So in verse 7, Isaiah writes, of the suffering servant, he was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There is the obvious imagery of the lamb that was slain. It isn't until, like we know the lamb that was slain, like we sing it in songs, you grew up hearing it, it's something you've known, it's been known by the church for thousands of years, so if you're born into a Christian home, it's something you hear about. Uh, It's just a regular, kind of well-accepted phrase or title or reality about Christ that we all agree on and don't probably think much of. So the imagery for us just pops out, oh yeah, Christ, the lamb that was slain, that makes sense to me. But it isn't until John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching him in John 1, 29, that we are explicitly told that the man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God. That's the first time it's really ever declared that explicitly, that the Lamb of God is this particular and specific man named Jesus. He's talked about in the Old Testament, but there's no human that is known at the time. It isn't until John 1.29 that we see that. And if anyone at that time did not know that John was calling him the Lamb of God as a reference not only to his deity, but to his upcoming sacrifice, well, that truth about Christ is revealed and clarified by Paul later in 1 Corinthians 5.7, where Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And if there is still any wonder about Jesus being God's sacrificial lamb, he is referenced in Revelation as the lamb 
27 times. And if you read through Revelation, one of the beautiful things about it is the way that Jesus is cast in two roles, this, uh, the, the lamb that is slain and the, and the lion, right? The lion of Judah. And so like there's this uh, diverse excellencies is what Jonathan, Edward call, Jonathan Edwards calls it. Uh, that, God, that Christ can be two seemingly opposite things at the same time and still maintain both of those offices and titles and realities in perfection. And so he is this conquering lion and a slain lamb. And he's portrayed throughout Revelation as a slain lamb because that's what Jesus decided to show John. So Christ himself reveals himself to John. That's why we call the book of Revelation, Revelation. It's really titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of end times. We always People are asking me all the time, we should preach in Revelation. Like you want, you're asking me to preach in end times. If we preach in Revelation, we're not going to cover a ton of end times. We're going to cover Christ because that's what the book is about. Which is also why we should, it should be singular for those of you who say revelations. There's only one. Because <laughs> there's only one Christ. There's only one revelation of Christ. And so in that book, he decides to show John one of the most one of the truest forms or expressions of himself for the church to know and see and what Christ decides he wants the church to see about himself is the lamb that was slain. Meaning, see my sacrifice. See the gift that I am to you. He wants the church to see himself as the suffering servant. Because if we can go through the entire book of Revelation... And seeing Christ the Lamb, Christ the Lamb, suffering servant, suffering servant, sacrifice, sacrifice. He died, he died, he died, he died. Every time he's called Lamb, it's a reminder. He was slain for your sins. Over and over, he was slain for your sins. He was slain for your sins. That's the message that we get from Revelation. He was slain for your sins. Why? Because when you get to the last two chapters, what happens? The Lamb makes all things new. The whole point is to realize who Christ is as a suffering servant and a slain lamb so that there would be this momentous and glorious expression of his, of his power and rule and reign that required his suffering to achieve. And Isaiah just peeks into that. And what he tells us in verse 7 with this lamb imagery And why this lamb imagery is important to Isaiah and also important to our understanding of Revelation or just the nature and character of Christ and also important to his sacrifice and the gospel. The lamb imagery is important to those things because of how the lamb dies silently. When sacrificing a lamb, the lamb doesn't know what is about to happen to them when it happens to them. Why? Because they're lambs. They're like dumb animals. Is really the best expression, you know, the best description of them. And therefore, they're just, they don't know what's going to happen until it happens. And so they're silent and non-resistant. There's a difference between a real lamb and Christ's lamb in that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. We know that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, revealing that he knows what's about to happen. He, he tells the apostles what is going to happen long before it happens. He says, tear down this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And then they say that was meant to reveal the way he would die and rise. And we also see that he knows exactly what's going to happen in John 10, 17 through 18, because he says, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So he knows what is coming, yet like a lamb, this is the way he's similar to the lamb, he's non-resistant and therefore silent. So why? Why would the lamb be silent? Why would the suffering servant Christ, Jesus, be silent? Because injustice had to take place. Injustice is the key to this fourth stanza. Injustice had to take place. The sacrifice cannot have justice for Jesus on earth and the perfect son of God slain for our sins. Those both can't happen. 
before the cross takes place. In order for him to die, he has to not deserve it. And therefore, in order for him not to deserve it, there must be an injustice. The reason he is silent is because if he were to open his mouth and defend himself, the truth is too true. It's too obvious. I mean, think about how Jesus talks to the Pharisees throughout all of his earthly ministry. He speaks in parables and then tells his disciples that he speaks in parables for a reason. So that certain people, mainly the Pharisees, would not understand. If he spoke clearly and plainly, they would have no recourse but to understand and believe if God so chose to open their eyes, which is what the word does. But if everyone who heard him speak was given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, then the injustice of his death that paid for our sins would have never happened. So he has to veil the truth behind the things that he says. So therefore the lamb had to be silent to procure his death that paid for our sins. So he was silent to ensure, he was silent to ensure the injustice of his death as was necessary for our salvation. Think about this in your own life. Like, we are so defensive and so offended. We're easily offended and very defensive. Both are pride. Offense and defensiveness is pride. And yet, when we try to defend ourselves, what we're defending is not perfection. You ever think about that? You defend yourself? You're defending imperfection? Why would you do that? Do you hate God? That sounds harsh, but I mean, seriously, like, why would you defend imperfection when we worship perfection? We want to be perfect. We pursue perfection. We have the perfection of Christ in us. We have his righteousness. We have the spirit of God in us who's perfect. We worship a perfect God. serve a perfect creator. We're going to spend eternity in perfection. We are working in sanctification toward perfection. We're commanded to be perfect. Then why are we over here defending imperfection? We're so defensive. It's pride. The perfect Christ had more reason to defend himself than anyone. The perfect Christ had more reason to defend himself than you ever will. And yet he understood that obedience to God, listen to me, he understood that obedience to God was more valuable than obtaining what we think is justice. I'm a justice person. Take some of those personality tests. My wife and I are different. She's a, uh, forget the, uh, oh, she's a mercy person so her heart immediately bleeds for something or someone and when I see something wrong I immediately go well what'd they do (laughs) like my first reaction is well is it right did they deserve it what happened I want to know if it was justified or not justified that's just the way I'm made and my wife immediately just like oh compassion for them and I'm like I'll decide to have compassion if it was injustice first so, like, if we just think differently, and obviously I need to grow out of that because that's not, that's not a healthy way to live your life. But I want to see injustices fixed. And if there's an injustice toward me, that, that desire to see justice done elevates even higher because of my pride. But Christ didn't do that. Jesus stood before Pilate and could have easily defended himself. Barely did. And Pilate was still like, eh, seems innocent to me. Jesus was silent because he knows who he is. He knows what he's there to do. And he's not overly concerned with what others think about him because he is so intensely concerned with what the Father thinks about him. And he's not just concerned about what the Father thinks about him, but he's concerned with doing the Father's will. And because he's so sure of the Father, because he knows him so well, he's not concerned with what others think. Because 
Compared to God knowing who you are, who cares what others think you are? That is called security. And it is our insecurity that makes us defensive, which is why we talk when we're offended and defend ourselves. But that's not what Christ did. What Christ did and what Scripture commands us to do is to endure suffering and take the loss. Like, you probably have way more opportunities in your daily life, and I mean daily life, to take a loss that you probably regularly instead fight to win. There are probably way more opportunities than you think there are on a weekly basis at least that you get to, get to, get the pleasure of and the joy of obedience in taking a loss joyfully instead of fighting for a win, defending yourself. You're going to face injustice. It's a promise. People will think things about you that aren't true. That's a promise. People will say things about you that aren't true. That's a promise. You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted in a various degree, uh, on a spectrum, various degrees, some severe, some not that severe. Life's going to be hard. People are difficult. We're all imperfect. We don't always get along. We're going to offend each other. We're going to say things we shouldn't say, or we're going to say something that is fine and someone misunderstands it, and there's a debacle and an argument in front, you know, disunity or whatever. In those opportunities, we have the freedom in Christ to take the loss. I think if you just, like here's a little weekly tactic for you. Like go into every morning and just remind yourself every morning, like, okay, today, taking the loss. Just every day, taking losses today, left and right. Taking losses. I get hit on one cheek, I turn the other. Take the loss. You want to take my tunic? You can have everything. They want an inch? Give them a mile. And what does uh, the, the, the world's wisdom say? Don't give them an inch or they'll take a mile. Christ says, take the inch and the mile. I'll take the death. I'll take the suffering. I'll take the loss. Why? Because of love and because of grace. So not only should we be acting that way and taking losses in the world with unbelievers, especially to show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but even more so between each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. What Christ shows us in his silence is the security and confidence that he has in who he is in the Father. And we, have, we can have, it's ours to obtain, whether we just got to pick it up, like Paul says in Colossians 3, We have absolute assurance and security of who we are in Christ. And because of that security and because of that confidence of the righteousness of Jesus and because we know the gospel and we know that our objective in life is to convey and preach and teach and live the gospel to our children, to our spouses, to our friends, to people that we work with, to our community and especially to the church, we should, like Christ, be taking losses every day with Joy. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Like that just is not the way. This is is the very reason why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, do not sue each other. He says, literally, why not rather you take the loss? Like that's, it's not saying, it sounds so practical. It's like we, t- we tend to take that text or something like that and we go, well, that only applies to when you're being sued. That's not at all what that means. What Paul is conveying is, what Paul's doing when he's talking about the believers suing each other is he's teaching them, let me show you people how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to take Isaiah 53, 7 and put it into your situation. And what we see from the suffering servant is a man who joyfully, though painfully, endures injustice with the satisfaction of knowing that enduring that justice will produce glory to God and satisfaction in him, Hebrews 12, 2. 
So it's not just about when you're getting sued. It's not just about lawsuits. It's in any circumstance. You're going to be mistreated. And if we all had that attitude, can you imagine how well we'd get along? Someone offends you because it's going to happen. And you're like, that's okay. They probably didn't mean it. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then you talk to them and you work it out because you're like willing to take the loss. Because you're not defensive. You're confident and secure in who you are. I always tell my kids this all the time. He called me stupid. I'm like, are you stupid? No. Then who cares? Right? Like, it's that simple. If you're not stupid, then who cares? You don't have to be offended. But we're go- it's going to happen. We're going to offend each other. And we need to be willing to take the loss because that is what Christ did. And I hope that we can all agree that there's nothing we want more than to be like Christ. Verse 8, Isaiah says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Oppression requires injustice. If there's no injustice, there's no, no oppression. So Isaiah is clarifying the unjust treatment of the suffering servant, that his oppression led to his judgment. He was taken away by the Romans and the Jews as judgment. And even Pilate admitted he'd done nothing wrong and had no reason to kill him. And even despite that, yet they continued to cry, crucify him, crucify him, because their judgment of his guilt stood upon the oppression he faced, which was unfair and unjust. And again, this is necessary because if he speaks with the intention of proving his innocence, then they would all be amazed. If he wanted, he could enlighten their eyes to the truth of who he is, but as Jesus admits himself, he came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father, who requires his unjust death to purchase you. Then Isaiah asked the question, as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? His generation, Christ's generation, are those who killed him, who cried for his crucifixion. As Peter says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That generation wanted him dead, and they got what they wanted. He was cut off out of the land of the living. They killed him. But Jeremiah eleven nineteen reveals a little more to what Isaiah is talking about here in verse 8. Because in Jeremiah eleven nineteen it says, He was cut off of the, out of the land, he was cut off out of the land of the living. And then it gives a reason. That his name be remembered no more. They wanted to kill his legacy. They wanted to crush his gospel. They didn't want to just kill him. They wanted to end his following. They wanted to kill him to prove to all the followers this guy dies just like everyone else dies. But, what they did not consider in his death was that he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Meaning, though they wanted him dead and wanted his name tarnished and wanted his legacy ended and wanted his following to stop, they did not consider his death to be a sacrificial payment for sins. They thought he was a heretic, a false prophet. They thought he was a liar. And so they want him dead. So when they kill him, they don't think this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, whose death is paying for the sins of man. They don't think that. They don't think his It's a sacrificial payment for sins once and for all, as Hebrews 7.27 and Hebrews 10.14 say. They unjustly killed him, but they didn't see it as injustice. They unfairly slaughtered the Lamb of God, thereby securing the sacrifice, 
but they did not consider it a sacrifice. And God's chosen people, Israel, didn't know he was their once-for-all sacrifice, so they kill him. And then in John's gospel, John clarifies that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's song of the suffering servant, and he specifically clarifies this point from verse 8, that his people Israel didn't know his death was God's final plan for the sacrifice of sins. So Isaiah says the people don't know that the man they're killing, his own generation kills him, not knowing that they're actually making the sacrifice for sins happen. And then John clarifies it too in John 1.11. He says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews didn't want their Jewish Messiah. The Jews didn't want their national Savior. They didn't want their spiritual Savior. They didn't want their God and their Savior. And we know they don't want their God. They claim they worship the Father, but Jesus says, if you don't know me, you don't know the Father, so you don't actually worship the Father. You think you worship the Father. Your heart is for the Father, but you don't worship him because you don't worship me. They wanted him dead because they thought he was a heretic, false prophet, false teacher. And they had no evidence, though. And whenever they asked Jesus for proof of his deity, he simply pointed to his works, or he pointed to scripture, or he simply pointed to reason, or a variety of those, which were all flawless, but they could not see past the veil of sin that Satan had put over their eyes, And Christ would not sovereignly remove the veil because if he had, he would not have become our sacrifice. If he removes the veil from their eyes, they're going to see the truth of who he is and they're not going to kill him. But we need him to die. He needed to die. It's the Father's plan that he die. So they can't see. So in order to become a sacrifice, he had to be rejected by his very own people. The the ones he came to save. But they didn't want him. And then John goes on to share share with us in chapter 1, verse 12. The next verse shares with us the beauty of how their rejection leads to our salvation. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Jews don't want him, they kill him. And because they kill him, what happens is the doors are opened for anyone who receives him. The gospel becomes a worldwide gospel. That was always the plan. Because Peter told us in Acts 2.23, it was God's plan that those Jews kill Jesus. That was God's, to quote Peter, definite plan. So to secure for us, Gentiles, salvation. So that we can see, like we see in Revelation 7, tribes of People from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, all people's groups represented eternally in heaven to reveal the diversity of God himself that is, while exceptionally diverse, completely united as one. And it required the Jews to cut him off. It required his generation to not consider him a sacrifice even though they killed him. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The injustice continues even after he dies they made his grave with the wicked, meaning they buried him like they bury any human. And in like their minds, what they're doing is they're proving that this is not God. This guy claimed to be God. We're going to show you that he's not God. And first of all, we're going to kill him. So not God. And then we're going to bury him with the wicked because that's what he is. We're going to bury him with people. That's really what Isaiah is saying is that their mentality isn't we're going to put him with the robbers and the criminals. We're going to bury him with people. People are wicked. We're going to 
Make him like everyone else. He's just going to be. Remember back earlier at the beginning of Isaiah 53, and Isaiah talks about he's just an ordinary first century Jew. Well, this ordinary first century Jew looks ordinary. He's going to die ordinary. We're going to bury him ordinary. And you'll all see the truth that he's just an ordinary guy, and he's not that special, and he's not the God that you think he is. Yet their attempt to convey his guilt by burying him with the wicked was overcome by the fact that he was actually buried with the rich. Which is kind of interesting coming from uh, a Christian perspective. Because we tend to think of the rich in scripture as wicked. Because the reality is that's usually how the rich are conveyed in scripture. Especially by Christ. But no use of any words that mean rich in Scripture directly means wicked. Whether the rich is wicked or holy is dependent on the context. What happens with Christ is they want to bury him, just like they bury anyone else, show that he's a common, ordinary, no-nothing-special kind of guy. But instead, God ordains and sends Joseph of Arimathea, who is both rich and righteous, And he took the slaughtered lamb and laid him in his own wealthy tomb that he'd cut out of rock himself. They accomplished killing Jesus and they thought they were doing righteous when they did it. And they thought that to bury him with the wicked would serve as validation that he's nothing special and that he's not God. Yet they did not get the satisfaction because God ordained that his burial would be one of honor in their culture. That doesn't really mean anything spiritually. If, if you or I or even Christ is put in a rich tomb or a poor tomb, it means nothing, really. But to the, to the generation that killed him, it's a slap in their face. To their culture, it's a slap in the face. It's God's way of saying, this is my son. And what we'll find in the fifth stanza is how beautiful that is revealed after he's in the grave. He was still dead, though. He was still in the grave. Like they probably thought they still won. And they believed that they were probably justified. And what I want to preach right now, but I'm not going to because it's not this text, is the idea that Isaiah talks about in next week's stanza, the fifth stanza. The impossibility for sinful man's murder of the Lamb of God to remain in the grave. Because Christ is going to burst from the grave in glory and honor and in validation of the injustice that was done to him. And the injustice was obvious because Isaiah says... He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No one ever in his earthly ministry was able to validate or prove or ensure any kind of inconsistency in Christ or any kind of sin or violence or any form of unrighteousness. They pursued Christ's actions on the Sabbath as proof that he broke the law of Moses and yet Christ properly interprets Moses' law and teaches the true meaning of the Sabbath that is meant to serve man. And then he uses David as an example. He says, no one cared about that. You guys don't understand the law the way I understand the law. I came to fulfill the law. He's constantly correcting them as they attempt over and over to catch him in a lie, to catch him in inconsistency, to catch him in unrighteousness. Breaking any law would be huge because you break one, you break them all. So with every attempt at proving his guilt, they are met with questions and answers to which they have no real valid response, which is why every time they talk to him, not every time, but oftentimes they talk to him and he gives them answers or he answers their questions with questions that make them kind of befuddled and they just go, and then scripture tells us, so they just tried to kill him. Like they don't know what else to say. They have no argument. They don't catch him off guard. Half the time he knows what they're thinking already. He speaks to them before they even speak to him sometimes. They cannot catch him sinning. 
though they try and try. Even when they claim that Christ falsely claims to be God, Jesus' response, though true, is met with deaf ears and is met with an inability to understand the truth of who he is. Because if they had understood, what do we know? They would have believed and then they would not have killed him and the lamb would not have been slaughtered. There would have been no injustice and we would not be saved. This was God's plan. Which will be even clearer next week. It was his plan that his own people, the Jews, would ensure the unfair and unjust death of the suffering servant. Though they believed it to be their own righteousness to kill a false prophet, it was actually God's goodness and grace to blind them to the truth and to close the mouth of the lamb so they would not see or hear so that he would be our sacrifice and love and by grace as a gift for us to cherish forever. What does that mean to us? I've already talked about what that means to us a little bit, right? Apart from the obvious that our faith in Christ is a gift from God secured by the unjust death of his son, it also means that we of all people should be the most enduring sufferers on earth. None of us should ever claim unfair, unjust, I'm offended, I demand this be made right. The world will never treat you well if you are serving and following Christ faithfully. Jesus clarified that for you himself many times in the gospel. And Paul even clarified it in his second letter to Timothy. The righteous will suffer. Period. All over scripture. So, There is a way in which we interact with the world. There is no command that we make reconciliation with the world. What does light have to do with darkness? What does righteousness have to do with wickedness? This is Paul's question when he talks about being unequally yoked. We aren't the same as them and they aren't the same as us. We're not special. We're just loved. That's it. We didn't do anything special. You're not extra good. You're not a great person. There's a lot of people I look at in the world who are unbelievers. I go, man, if that dude was just saved, can you imagine the kind of impact he'd make on the kingdom? And then you look at scripture and you see God using the most ordinary, not special people doing the most extraordinary special things. You're not special. Neither am I. But you're special to God because he chose to love you and chose to save you. And that reality we carry into the world and it can come off to the world as arrogance and self-righteousness and judgment. So careful how you interact with them. But we must proclaim the truth. And if we live the truth and we live according to our biblical convictions, there's going to be a point when rubber meets the road, when your conviction meets the world and you have to stand on Christ instead of following the world and they're going to hate you. And if standing on your biblical conviction means you don't reconcile in a relationship with an unbeliever, then so be it. It doesn't mean that that's our point or our purpose. Because we need to and should want to pursue their hearts so they would believe in Christ. I'm not trying to create a division between us and the world, but it exists. We're not them. They're not us. It's different. We're different. We should know that. And the, the church culture today is so afraid of offending the world that they say things like, oh, we're just like you and we're just, we don't want to offend you with the gospel, so we're just going to kind of like talk to you gently. We're never going to stand strong in any conviction because then you'd feel like we're judging you. And it's just such a soft and weak and pitiful and ungodly and non-Christ-like attitude to carry into the world. They're dying and they're going to go to hell if they aren't saved. And they'll never be saved if our good works don't show up in our strong biblical convictions that we stand on no matter what we face in the world. That is what Jesus meant when he said, do good works and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. But if we're weak and afraid of them and so scared to offend because, you know, I just won't say anything this time. I'll just escape this situation. I'll just 
kind of go along with it, instead of standing against sin and standing for Christ and standing in the gospel and standing true and being true to your convictions, to the word of God, which, by the way, in order to stand in those convictions, you have to know the word of God. And if you do that, the world will hate you. But that is also the way in which individuals will come to find Christ as glorious by your strong convictions. Now just for clarity, it's different with believers. If there is injustice between believers, that is a different thing. If a believer offends you, then there needs to be restoration. There has to be. Has to be. It's not a suggestion. It's commanded. It's required. It's about unity and love and the gospel. It's required. That restoration requires that one of the parties declares an offense, right? If there's an offense from a believer to a believer and there's going to be restoration, that restoration requires that someone says to the other person, I'm offended. So before I'm telling you, get over yourself, don't be offended, the reality is you're going to be offended. And if it's a believer who offends you, that restoration requires communicating that offense. The key is, the difference is, the way we do it. The attitude of declaring an offense from another believer is one that seeks unity and seeks love and restoration and a desire to proclaim and reflect Jesus Christ, a passion that I love this person. My brother or sister in Christ has done something that I'm offended by. I want them to be right with God. I don't want them to be offending people. And I'm hurt and they hurt me and I want them to know that they shouldn't hurt people. And I want them to know that I love them and forgive them. And there's no amount of hurt they could ever do to me as a, my brother or sister in Christ that could ever separate us from each other. And the love of Christ, that's the gospel. That's why we restore relationships. We have to. If we don't, we're virtually saying the gospel means nothing. We have to restore relationships. And it requires communicating offense, but our attitude has to be one of, I love you and I desire to be right with you. I will forgive you seven times, 70 times, 700 times, 7,000 over and over and over again as you offend me, and I hope you would continuously forgive me every time I offend you. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of the gospel that we need to have towards each other. When there's division in the church, you know why that exists? People won't forgive. People aren't communicating. People aren't restoring relationships. Those unrestored relationships Fester and bitterness grows. And from bitterness grows, as Ephesians 4, from bitterness grows malice and envy and deceit and murder. And Jesus talks about murder. He says murder isn't just the physical act of taking someone's life. He's talking about the heart. Well, you've heard that murder is wrong. Well, pff, being angry is murder. Because what's the, what, what is the action? The action is irrelevant, really, when it comes to your heart. Because that's what God cares about. So you think a murderer is bad. Why well, they murder? Because they're angry. Well, you're just as bad when you're angry at your brother. You're a murderer. In heart, we have to restore relationships. Division in the church only exists because people aren't restoring relationships. And we aren't restoring relationships because we don't see the significance it has to the gospel. And we don't live the gospel, love the gospel, read the gospel, pray the gospel, worship Jesus and exalt the gospel. We aren't Christ-centered. We aren't in the word. We aren't spirit-filled. Those are the reasons we don't restore relationships. Instead, we carry around our offenses like a weapon. And every time someone offends us, that's more ammo. Put it in the magazine. Lock and loaded. Next time someone offends me, I'm going to fire this weapon at somebody. And, we, and it creates more disaster and more problems and more division. And this is why restoration is mandatory for unity in the church. The world's going to hate you. They're going to defy you. You don't owe them anything. We want them to believe so stand strong on your biblical convictions. But in the church, 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, your brother has an offense against you, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right with him before. And virtually what he's saying is, don't even think about coming to me to worship me when you are at odds with me. You have a problem with your brother, sister, in Christ, you got a problem with me. That's what Jesus is saying. Because they're mine, and I'm in them, and they're in me. The high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus says, make them and us and you and I and them and we're all together. Father, you and me are one. We are in each other. Make them in us like I am in you. We are united in Christ. We are one with Christ. So you got a brother or sister in Christ. You're talking to Christ, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. When you submit to each other, you're revering not the person, you're revering Christ in them. You're saying, I see you as Christ sees you. I see you as I see Christ. Loved, cherished child of God who I'm going to treat like a king. So I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to serve you faithfully at any loss that it takes for me. I'm going to serve you because you're my brother or sister in Christ. To be at odds with that person is an offense to Christ because he's saying you're at odds with me because they're in me and I'm in them. And you're in me and I'm in you, which means you are in them and they are in you and yet you're divided. And Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And we wonder why churches aren't doing well. Restoration is mandatory. And it requires the attitude that we talked about earlier, the attitude of Christ before he gets sacrificed. An attitude of, I am willing to take the loss. If I have to be restored with my brother or sister in Christ, I will be the one who suffers. I will take the loss. I will admit the blame. I will confess my sin. I will be the one who who says, I did wrong to you, I don't care whatever it takes, I will take all the blame, anything I did wrong to you, in humility and in patience and bearing with one another's sin, we go to each other and say, I am wrong. How have I offended you? How have I hurt you? I'm so sorry, I apologize, forgive me. Any offense I've done to you, forgive me. I am an imperfect person. I wanna be humble like Christ. Let's be restored, let's be united, let's build the church, let's build the kingdom. That's what it takes. There's just too many believers walking around with this chip on their shoulder and this pride in their heart and this insecurity that they wear as a mask over their face that says, I didn't do anything. Well, it's their fault. Well, what about them? What about you? What, what, what? Oh, this is wrong. That's wrong. They're wrong. That, that gets us nowhere. That doesn't serve the kingdom. That doesn't build the kingdom. That doesn't exalt Christ. It doesn't convey the gospel. It doesn't restore relationships. Christ didn't go through all of this. I mean, you should look at what he goes through in Isaiah 53. He doesn't go through all of this pain and suffering and silence and facing such incredible injustice when all he had to do was say, I'm God, believe. And they would have been like, oh, they would have fell to the ground and worshipped him. But that was not God's will. He didn't endure that intense and insane and really unfathomable amount of injustice that they took God himself, put him on trial, and said, you're not who you say you are, and they killed him. There is nothing worse than that. Such a grave injustice. He didn't go through all of that so that we could all be part of the church and then do the exact opposite to each other. That doesn't make sense. And it doesn't glorify God. And... If you're looking for a what's in it for me, because that's okay to have a what's in it for me kind of mentality. What's in it for you? 100% total, pure, and absolute satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ alone. That's what's in it for you. Have you ever restored with somebody? Man, it feels good. It just feels so right. Doesn't it? No, I'm the only one that's ever done Okay. <laughs> I know you guys. You're just... It, it just, it's, it feels good because it's right. It feels good because Christ satisfies. So, expect to be treated unfairly by the world and quietly and silently endure 
your suffering and evil patiently and quietly. As 2 Timothy 2.24 says, patiently endure evil. But with one another, we are not silent. We are restorative through rebuke and correction and reproof and encouragement that has its foundations in the word of God. We use the word to communicate our offenses, to be humble and to be humbled and to be restored to one another in unity just as God has secured for us in the death of a suffering servant, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are failures on our own. Like when we try to fix our problems without you, it just, we just make a mess. We're like toddlers trying to clean up spilt milk. We just spread it all over the place. Make a bigger mess than it was. We need you. We simply need you. That's all there is to it. We just need you. So, restore broken relationships. Build unity in your church by fixing offenses and injustices according to your word. Cause your people to be in your word, to know your word, to study your word, to read, to read your word, to meditate on your word, to recite your word, to, to pray over your word, to pray the words of your word so that we would know it and we could stand on its convictions and therefore be like Christ and therefore make all things right in the church so we would not be a divided house that falls, but a united house that stands for something, stands for the gospel, stands for Christ, stands for God's glory, stands for humility, stands for forgiveness, stands for brokenness, stands for suffering and taking loss and sacrifice, dying for one another. Give us hum humble hearts and sacrificial attitudes. Help us to learn how to take the loss like you did, Jesus. If you hadn't, we wouldn't even be here. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy your week, guys. See you later.